and thank you for joining NGI's Hub and Flow podcast. My name is Patrick Rao, Director of Strategy and Research, and I'd like to take a few minutes today to offer our thoughts and takeaways from first quarter 2020 earnings conference calls from the North American natural gas sector. Now, each quarter at NGI, we listen to or read transcripts from more than 100 earnings conference calls for companies that comprise the North American natural gas supply chain in an effort to provide the most up-to-date and topical coverage that we can. So obviously, the topic on everybody's minds in energy and really in every industry is that of COVID. And I thought that uh, Schlumberger set the tone just less than five minutes into earnings season when their CEO noted that the second quarter is likely to be the most uncertain and disruptive quarter that the industry has ever seen. We've seen that several estimates have crude oil demand of falling 20 to 30 million barrels per day in the second quarter, and that's globally. And certainly there's a lot of uncertainty going forward. As a result, companies all along the energy value chain are conserving cash via lower capital expenditures and operating expenses. And they're also reducing the amount of cash they give back to shareholders, which I'll talk more about here in a moment. In addition, most unregulated companies have either slashed or withdrawn their guidance entirely. And for that, I'll tell you, I'm really glad I'm not on the sell set anymore because trying to come up with single dollar and cent earnings estimates for these companies in this environment is no easy task. Now, in the United States, U.S. producers are cutting their 2020 capex by as much as 50% year over year. And we're seeing that in the rig counts. The U.S. rig count is now down 57% since the beginning of March, and certainly more rigged crops are coming. Crude oil prices so far, they're the ones that have been bearing the brunt of all this, although we know that they've rallied back above $30 a barrel here in the last few days. In the United States, crude demand and supply remain very low. In fact, U.S. refinery capital utilization is currently 68%, and that's pretty much the lowest level that's available in the 30-year archive of EIA data. Now, according to Plains All-American, May shut-ins in both the United States and Canada were 3.5 to 4.5 million barrels of oil per day. And we note that curtailments are going to be registered month to month here. Now, while nobody said that they could predict when COVID would end, and, and that's certainly understandable, the consensus seems to me that these oil cuts will bottom sometime here in the second quarter. On the flip side of all this is that natural gas prices have certainly benefited. In the United States, those are up 17% from the February 28 lows, thanks to lower associated gas production. So it certainly has been helping gas producers so far. Question is, was, will this continue? And the main concern, obviously, is what is the industry going to look like coming out of COVID? Particularly, what will crude oil demand look like? Crude oil, the industry is already facing the threat of longer-term competition from renewables and energy transition, and now we need to add to that the fear of permanent demand destruction. Now, China is providing a little bit of optimism on this front as their economies start to rebound following their bout with COVID, but the main question is, is, is a global recession in store? That a global recession hits, that's certainly going to reduce energy demand across the world, and that won't be good for commodity prices in any country. Longer term, though, the question remains is, will there be changes in human behavior? And by that, we mean is, will more folks telecommute going forward? Will they just be working from home? And that's obviously important because crude oil demand is led largely by demand for transportation fuels. One thing we thought was interesting was just a comment that Sean O'Brien, who's the CFO of DCP Midstream, said on their first quarter call. And that is, quote, we're going to do things differently 
even when we get back to normal, we've learned how to do things more efficiently. We don't need everyone in the office. It's pretty impressive, end of quote. If fewer people are going to work, that means public transportation will probably be slow, and that's a large consumer of gasoline. Uh, same with the aviation side of the, the market. We note that virtually no jet fuel is being produced in the United States right now. And Boeing CEO David Calhoun said recently that he doesn't think air traffic will approach 2019 levels for three to five years. Furthermore, Warren Buffett of Berkshire Hathaway just sold their stakes in four major U.S. airlines, warning that the world has changed for the aviation industry because of the coronavirus. And longer term, just to throw more fuel on the fire here, is that it's very likely that taxes are going to increase in the United States to help to fund the fiscal stimulus that's been required to help guide us through the COVID epidemic. So, there is certainly some more uncertainty with crude oil production and prices, but we'll say that that is probably good for gas prices, everything else being equal, because anything that limits associated gas production would be beneficial for gas prices. Now, this next section I've got titled Dividend Policy. What dividend policy? By that, I mean cash preservation is the number one goal in the face of COVID-induced uncertainty among the uh, natural gas energy chain companies right now. We note that more than half the non-regulated entities in our coverage universe cut their dividends in the quarter. And according to our calculations, based on Bloomberg consensus data, publicly traded U.S. natural gas entities cut their dividend a collective 15% quarter over quarter. And if you look at what the consensus uh, second quarter dividends per share will be, that will end up being down 23% from the year and 2019. So that is obviously quite a bite. We note that companies have also stopped buying back shares by and large. The biggest shock this quarter, of course, came from Royal Dutch Shell, as they slashed their dividend by two-thirds, and it's their first dividend cut since World War II. And the question has become, does this represent the new normal, or is it maybe just more of an isolated company-specific type of phenomenon? And we think that uh, you know, uh, ubiquitous dividend cuts or those that last aren't necessarily going to be the case. But one thing to take a look at with respect to the shell cut is that we notice that European-based majors are being more conservative with their dividend than their American counterparts. And let's look at the, uh, the major oil production sector. Royal Dutch and Equinor both cut their dividends by about two-thirds. BP kept theirs intact, but they said they'd gone from reviewing its quarterly dividend on a quarterly basis to a weekly basis. All these companies certainly expressed uh, concerns about demand beyond COVID. Meanwhile, you've got Exxon and Chevron, two American companies who are more confident in things bouncing back, and they have not changed their dividend to date. And one thing that could be certainly impacting the Europeans' view on this is their ongoing investments in renewables and pursuing a zero net emissions. And that requires a significant amount of capital expenditures on their part. Not to say that the U.S. companies won't do that or won't do that in time, but certainly the European counterparts are a little farther ahead on that front. As an example, Equinor said it's looking to spend two to three billion dollars per year on energy transition going forward. Their announced 67% dividend cut would save them about 2.2 billion dollars a year in dividends. So that's right there in that fairway of two to three billion in renewable uh, energy capex, and that could be a coincidence. But if they sustain that dividend cut, they now have a means to fund that spending going forward. So certainly this extra 
energy transition capital expenditure plans from Europeans are probably influencing their dividend policy decisions, and therefore those aren't necessarily emblematic of the entire industry. And one thing that wouldn't shock us if we start seeing more energy names, EP names in particular, adopt a variable dividend. And several companies mentioned the possibility of doing just that during the first quarter calls. Longer term, if the EMP sector truly wishes to compete with S&P 500 companies, then having a dividend is important. And to have a dividend and grow it, it really does require some production growth. So in case folks were thinking that maybe energy companies were going to be stuck in a permanent or a long-lasting maintenance type of mode, there is that impetus for them to increase production of at least somewhat going forward. Now, sticking with the financial theme, let's talk about debt markets for a moment. We note that they may be slowly opening for some of the energy names now. And look, they can't really get a whole lot worse from, from where the market is now. And then the good news isn't necessarily spread to everybody, as we note that the base level for reserve-based lending revolving credit facilities fell by more than double digits. Some companies saw their revolvers flash by 40%. But we do note that the convertible market in particular is starting to open again. And convertibles, the, the allure of those is that they have an embedded option in them, of course, to convert that debt into equity. And the value of any option becomes more valuable in the face of price volatility, and we're certainly seeing that. But the increased demand here also suggests to us is that uh, investors may be becoming a little bit more bullish on oil and gas prices going forward. And that would certainly be a good thing for our industry. We note also that several companies reported successful debt offerings and refinancing in the quarter, and that even extended to the non-investment grade names. So that is certainly good news. And finally, all companies right now are showing a renewed commitment or an increased commitment to improving their balance sheets. So that certainly is good for the debt markets going forward. And the need for companies to draw on debt may increase here in time, particularly if consolidation is to happen. Analysts and management alike all seem to agree that the industry certainly needs more consolidation, if for no other reason than to help to continue to drive costs lower. But we think that any massive wave of mergers could take a while to form. Now, it's not to say that there isn't an immediate need for some, particularly in light of some of the bankruptcies out there. Whiting Petroleum, Ultra Petroleum, and Hornbeck Offshore Services just declared bankruptcy, and there is speculation that Chesapeake Energy may soon follow. In this environment, companies, rightly so, are vanguarding their cash right now. So they're looking to hoard cash, not necessarily to spend it. So that right there is a reason why you may not see a rush of M&A activity just yet. There's certainly just no urgency to add leverage to balance sheets in this environment. And we wonder if some companies might be a little bit scared off by the Oxy and Adarco deal just because of the amount of debt that Oxy had to add to their balance sheet to get that deal through. Another limiting factor could simply be that there have already been a number of acquisitions out there that were done to block up acreage. The merger of EQT and Rice Energy was a good example of that. Yet another stumbling block is that COVID prevents parties from traveling, and face-to-face -face meetings still do very much matter when it comes to merger talk. One other thing is that uh, there just very well could be too many non-investment-grade companies out there right now. And we just did a study where uh, we found that 60% of all U.S. natural gas produced by publicly traded companies are done by entities that are high yield or junk status. And in fact, all 10 major publicly traded Appalachia producers are junk rated, non-investment grade. 
So if that's the case, how would one of those companies necessarily go out and acquire the other? It would help if there were some investment-grade companies that came to help there. But in the Appalachia particularly, we note that two investment-grade companies just left the basin, or RDS, uh, Shell did with their sale to uh, properties to uh, National Fuel Gas. And Chevron hasn't left yet, but their properties, Appalachian properties, are on the sales block. So maybe what this just means is that you'll start seeing more friendly mergers down the pike. Finally, I'll say that many prominent companies said that M&I just isn't on their radar right now, but you know we'd expect them to say that because why would they come out and say, hey, we're looking to acquire these particular companies? All that would do is blow up bid aspirates, and they'd, in essence, start bidding against themselves. The bottom line of all this is that we think we're probably going to have to wait a little bit more until some of the COVID-related uncertainty and travel restrictions ease before we do see the next round of deals. Okay, let's now move from the financial to more of the physical markets. Another of our takeaways is we think that U.S. gas producers are certainly becoming more encouraged, buoyed by the recent increase in gas prices. But we believe they're going to need to have more comfort in long-term prices before adding rigs. Now, based on comments from a number of gas-focused producers this quarter, we think that more gas-directed rigs would go to work at NYMEX strip prices above $2.75. But again, that would have to be sustainable. And we think there are several emerging threats to that from happening in the short run. Number one is that supply could come back on fairly quickly, assuming that there are no labor issues. And by labor issues, I mean that there's no problems taking some of these recently let go or furloughed employees and bring them back and having them start operating from day one. Assuming that that's not an issue, we note that I don't think that a single producer expressed any kind of concern that shut-ins are doing any sort of uh, long-term reservoir damage. So we'd expect whatever was shut-in to be able to come back. And most of that shut-in production should be able to come back online within a month or so, again, according to comments during these earnings conference calls. We also see that many producers are deferring production until this winter in order to take advantage of higher winter prices that are currently closer to $3 per, per, per MMBTU. And they're also building drilled but uncompleted wells, ducts, in anticipation of doing just that. So you could see a rise in production just coming from drawing down ducts. But on the tail end of that, we note that cycle times continue to come down in the U.S. And by cycle times, I mean spud to turning the well online. I think the rule of thumb used to be that that took six to nine months. But we note that efficiency gains have shaved maybe one to three months off of that timeline in some circumstances. The bottom line being is that uh, producers would not have to add rigs quite as quickly in order to increase production for that would likely come on in 2021. They wouldn't have to do that as early as some might have otherwise thought. Now, on the demand side, we note that uh, higher prices in the United States are hurting U.S. LNG exports. We see that just last week, in fact, deliveries of gas, feed gas, to the lower 48 liquefaction facilities are down roughly 2 to 3 BCF a day. And that gas has got to go somewhere. And if it goes into storage, it's just going to add to existing storage surplus levels that are already well above both last year and previous five-year averages. Longer term, however, there is something that could help support gas prices in the United States. And that is if the Saudi Arabia or Russia renew their price war. They can do it. And even the threat of their doing again could help prevent U.S. crude oil prices from rising above $45 WTI long term. Now, 
Pioneer CEO Scott Sheffield opined during their call that that U.S. shale industry probably wouldn't see too much production growth at or below that level, which means that that's just going to put all the more pressure on U.S. producers to lower their cost structure going forward, which is a great segue into the next takeaway, and that there was a heavy emphasis on efficiency gains this quarter. Talk of automation and digital solutions and machine learning are certainly picking up steam and was a very hot topic this quarter. There seems to be heightened investor interest on simultaneous well fracking as well. Now, most producers noted that they think they'll be able to retain their recent efficiency gains going forward. And that's important because lower production and finding and development costs have a downward impact on commodity prices over time. Remember, producers are price takers. But uh, we believe that they're willing to accept a lower price if their cost structure is lower. So if they continue to reduce costs through efficiency gains, particularly since those are longer lasting, that would probably put some downward pressure on commodity prices, everything else being equal. Turning to LNG in the United States, we think that U.S. LNG is taking a bit of a short to midterm pause, but we still think the long-term outlook is very good. And we note that LNG exports have grown from nothing to being as much as 9% of daily U.S. dry gas production today. Unfortunately, right now, our models show that U.S. LNG is largely uneconomic through September, and Chenier has even confirmed that cargoes are being canceled throughout that window. I mentioned before that the nominations to uh, the U.S. export facilities, LNG liquefaction facilities, are down 2 to 3 BCF a day. So that shows that short-term demand is certainly down here in recent days. Now, as far as the next wave of projects, the so-called second wave of U.S. export projects, those timelines and decisions keep getting pushed out. Uh, Semper noted that final decision on Port Arthur is going to be delayed till 2021. And next decade said the same thing with respect to the Rio Grande project. Now, Shell just flat out withdrew their participation from the proposed Lake Charles project. Chenier, it actually came out with an updated forecast on what they think the FID schedule for projects is going to be. Before COVID, they were expecting another 126 million tons per annum would be uh, given the green light between the years 2020 and 2021. They've now cut that back to 65 MTPA. So some short midterm uncertainty for LNG, but longer term, we think the outlook still remains very bright for US LNG. And in fact, pundits are still calling for a global shortage of the fuel at some point later this decade. Last quick takeaway is that ESG, environmental, social, and governance has not gone away. I mean, look, the focus right now is certainly on conserving cash So analysts just didn't ask that much about it on the various conference calls. But I can tell you that ESG remains very prominent among investor relations presentations. There are still many slides dedicated to that in those presentations, and it does remain firmly on the long-term radar of investors. It just is taking a bit of a backseat right now, given the immediate uncertainties with COVID. That's all I have in terms of actual takeaways, but just one quick reminder about our first quarter 20 earnings conference call sheet. If you go to the uh, upper right-hand section of our company homepage, take a look there. There's a link to our uh, conference call table, which shows what the scheduled conference call date and times were for the various calls here in the first quarter. It provides uh, links to investor relations homepages. 
And it also shows links to any stories that we wrote about those various companies covering their first quarter earnings. So it's a nice, handy-dandy, convenient reference point for your planning going forward. So if you take a look at that for our second quarter, you'll see the fresh and updated conference call times there, and you can plan your schedule accordingly. So with that, I'd like to close by saying that Natural Gas Intelligence is a leading provider of natural gas news and market data for the energy industry. We recently launched our ninth publication called LNG Insight, which, as its name suggests, focused on the emerging global LNG industry, but with more of a North American slant. That service is still in beta trial, but we'll continue to offer that for free for a limited time. For more information on that and all of our services, please visit our website at www.naturalgasintel.com. On behalf of everyone at Natural Gas Intelligence, I'd like to thank you once again for joining us today. Until next time, this is Patrick Rao for NGI, wishing you all good days ahead. Take care, everyone.